0: Health challenges, notably substance use and mental health, are more prevalent than ever, but the workforce is shrinking even as the need for equitable services grows. How did we get here? How can we turn the tide? And how can we incorporate social justice into those efforts? We're taking one more look at these issues in this last episode of the Charting the Way podcast miniseries. I'm Eric Tischler from Apt Associates, and joining me today are my colleague, Lee Fisher, and our guest, Tim Brennan, MD. Tim is Vice President for Medical and Academic Affairs at the American College of Academic Addiction Medicine. He's also the Director of the Addiction Institute at Mount Sinai West and Mount Sinai St. Luke's Hospitals, and the Program Director of the Fellowship in Addiction Medicine Program at the Icahn School of Medicine, Mount Sinai in York City. Lee is a senior associate at APT, where she works with clients such as SAMHSA and the Hilton Foundation to address social determinants of health, promote mental and physical well-being, and integration of services and systems to improve outcomes for children, youth, and families. Her work focuses on mental health and substance use policy, research, and implementation. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here.
0: My pleasure. Good to be on with you, and thanks for this opportunity. Today, we're going to discuss the state of addiction medicine treatment. So, Tim, can you explain how you differentiate addiction treatment from care for other health challenges?
2: Sure. Thanks, Eric. And thanks, Lee, for this opportunity to to join you. Um, I, I oftentimes like to, to compare addiction treatment to the care of a heart attack. Um, right now, right this very moment, if any of us on this podcast were to walk into an American emergency room, whether that be in Los Angeles, New Orleans, or here in New York City, and we were to complain of crushing chest pain that was radiating over to our left shoulder, we would all get essentially the exact same workup. We would get the exact same types of medications. Um, And to be clear, we would see a board certified cardiologist no matter what emergency room we went into, the care, has been honed through decades of peer-reviewed journals. It's been discussed at medical conferences and it's very homogeneous and algorithmic. At the same time, if any of us this afternoon were to go into an emergency room in Los Angeles, New Orleans, or here in New York and complain of opioid withdrawal or alcohol withdrawal, the sad reality is, is that we would get very different care depending on where we went into the hospital. In some emergency rooms, there might not even be an addiction medicine doctor like myself that's available for consultation. Some emergency rooms may call a social worker, and that's not to say something's wrong with social workers, but we very much consider addiction to be uh, a medical illness that should be treated by, by physicians. Uh, and so I say that because when I think of the disease of addiction, I'm very comfortable defining it as a medical illness but I very much want patients to have access to the same evidence-based medicine that they have when they go to the emergency room and, and are complaining of chest pain. So that's our goal, it's a, it's a lofty one, but I think we're headed in the right direction.
0: So Tim, you, know, you just mentioned sort of a variety of responses. Um, now obviously substance use is not a new issue, uh, but so why is developing a stronger workforce to tackle uh, substance use and related concerns been so challenging?
2: I, I think it's helpful if we go back 50 or 60 years in American organized medicine. Um, To be honest, if, if you grew up in the 50s and 60s, there was definitely addiction. There were many people that were suffering from alcohol addiction, but they didn't tell their doctors about it. It was talked about in hushed tones, and people were not comfortable thinking of addiction as a medical disease. And for that reason, physicians didn't treat addiction. There were a few of them, but for the most part, it was considered a a, a moral failing. And we of course know that that's not the case, but, but that's what it was considered. And so we did not have any workforce of trained physicians who were specializing in treating the disease of addiction. And because of that, addiction treatment took place outside of the traditional walls of organized medicine. I mean, outside the hospital. It was treated in mostly community-level self-help group groups, things like Alcoholics Anonymous and others. And uh, the only qualifying credential one needed to treat somebody with addiction was perhaps having overcome their own addiction. And there's a really wonderful and rich tradition of that type of self-help uh, in in our field, but it was not part and parcel of the of organized medicine. And then thankfully in the um, 90s and early 2000s, physicians started to organize around this idea of becoming a medical specialty. And thanks to some pioneering physicians um, in the American Board of Addiction Medicine, we were finally able to become a member of the American Board of Medical Specialties, which has allowed us to describe the work we do and has allowed us to uh, treat addiction here in the hospital with the same evidence-based medicine that we use for for other conditions. And so now we have a workforce that needs to be filled. We've created this specialty, we're recognized by the ABMS, we have fellowships that are accredited by the ACGME, but we have to figure out a way to convince physician trainees to come into this wonderful specialty. So that's kind of the task um, before us. The question really is, you know, who should be treating addiction? And and I feel very strongly that physicians of all backgrounds should be treating addiction, whether it be pediatricians, internists, family medicine, doctors, and so on. But with these fellowships, we now have one year training opportunities for all of those physicians to come and receive subspecialty fellowship level training in addiction medicine, so that they can augment their own practices and be able to treat addiction in all of their patients.
0: But Lee, you want to talk about some of the challenges you've been seeing um in building this workforce?
1: Tim mentioned for so long I think um individuals with a substance use concern or disorder were um considered to have a moral it was a moral issue or it's a criminal justice problem and that's how we've treated it. And so we I, I think as a, a general field we've come a long way. Um, in in recent years to recognize that that addiction is a medical condition, it is treatable. We have evidence-based interventions. We have recovery support. Um, We have integrated systems of care now where we have highly trained behavioral health providers and medical providers working hand in hand um, to help individuals who have substance use disorder. And yet, in in my work, um, I've traveled a lot around the state of Colorado. Um, I I am a Coloradan and I live and work from from Colorado. And I have spent a lot of time working with hospitals and primary care offices and community health centers, um, doing training and providing technical assistance around um, how do you screen for substance use concerns, how do you have conversations with patients around uh, reducing their risk related to substances. How do you make effective referrals to um, evidence-based care treatment? Um, And we still hear that, oh, we don't have that problem here. Our patients don't have that problem. Um, It's not our job to address those issues. So while we've come a long way, I, th- I just wanted to recognize that the stigma still exists and, and we we have a lot further to go um, in order to train up the workforce and help um, health professionals across the board understand the key role that they can play in, in addressing this issue. So, Tim, I know we've talked about this before in, in past conversations that the workforce really um, has been relatively siloed. Um, and there are different groups of providers, and there's also um a lot of i think question and concern around who um who owns what part of of the treatment field i would say, and whose role is it to to provide that care and I think. Um, we could move forward together if we start to have conversations together and say we need we need to tackle this as a community of providers of um and take a more multidisciplinary approach um, to work together um to help individuals and families.
2: Lee, that's a really good point. Um and I'm I'm glad you raised it. Uh, there's a often utilized um <clears throat> concept in in addiction medicine, which is a sad one, and and that's of uh, the patient essentially becoming a bit of a hot potato. And and what I mean by that is it's somebody who's interacting with different types of healthcare providers, uh, different parts of the healthcare system, and no one provider, no one center is willing to really take ownership of that patient. And when you think, for example, of the disease of opioid use disorder, uh, these folks frequently find themselves in pain management offices or emergency departments or, God forbid, the back of a police car. And so you can imagine that as they pass through the health system, they're not necessarily doing so in a manner that we would want them to. And because of that, that sort of perpetuates the, the stigma about who actually is 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 treating these patients and, and who's taking ownership for their coordination of care. Um, So I'm sure all medical specialties consider themselves uh, interdisciplinary. Um, I think that's uniquely true uh, in addiction medicine. Physicians are just one part of the addiction care team. I'm proud to say that on our team here in the hospital, there are social workers, substance abuse counselors, uh, licensed mental health counselors, uh, nurses, of course, and then folks with lived experience, uh, peers as they're known, uh, which are really an invaluable member of, of our team.
1: I think there's been more of an effort in over the last uh, 15 years or so to train health a variety of health professionals in how to identify and address substance use issues. Um, I know that SAMHSA had a very large um, initiative under their S Espert portfolio. Espert is screening brief intervention and referral to treatment for substance use. Um, it's been a long-standing um, program at SAMHSA, and um, SAMHSA invested um, funding into health professional training programs so that a variety of health professionals, including medical students and residency programs, um, psychology, students, uh, schools of nursing and social work all would have the opportunity to integrate curriculum around identification and treatment for substance use disorder into their um, programs for students. So, these types of opportunities have um, existed now for a while, but again, I don't know that there is to this day anything that's more systematic. I, I I've heard time and time again that the average medical student only receives about three hours worth of education around substance use prevention and intervention while in medical school. Um, And and it's just not enough considering that substance use is one of the leading causes of preventable death in the United States. So there's a lot more that we need to do to sort of educate the the workforce across the board. Um, The Hilton Foundation, for the past six years has been investing in health professional training around identifying youth, substance use. Um, It's often said that um, addiction is a pediatric disease. And so there's more that we need to be doing to identify risk earlier on um, in young people's lives and to intervene um, with youth in order to prevent Um, addiction in adulthood. And um, so the Hilton Foundation has um, funded training programs, um, including with the American College of Academic Addiction Medicine, Um, the NORC has had funding to train, um, to provide training and education to nursing schools, um, social work programs, and uh, APT Associates has served as the cross-grantee um, evaluation and learning partner with the Hilton Foundation on this effort. So we've had the opportunity to work closely with these grantees and to understand the progress that's been made in in training countless um, residents and nursing students, social work students over the past six years. Well, that's great.
0: Um, you talk about the progress being made uh, because I think the next question would be then you know. We're making progress. What can we do to further advance this workforce? You know, this is we're we're doing, we're we're starting to turn the ship. Um, I would say how do we turn the afterburners? But I'm mixing my my vehicle metaphors. Um, you know, what 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 more can we be doing? How do we accelerate in the future?
2: Yeah, if if I could uh, maybe take a stab at that, Eric. Um, I mean, as Lee mentioned, getting time in front of medical students is really challenging. Uh, most medical schools um, do the, spend the first half of the medical school experience, the first two years doing classroom-based didactic instruction. And then the second two years, of course, on the wards, um, learning about how to actually uh, practice medicine, practice surgery. Um, it turns out those two years are, as you would imagine, pretty packed at the, and I'm talking about the, f- the front two years. And so when you want to add in curriculum at the undergraduate medical education uh, level, it stands to reason that something has to go in order to add on some lecture material. And so Lee's right. Uh, the, the reality is that most medical students get three or four hours of addiction training throughout their medical education. Um, the problem is that when you look at the types of diseases encountered by people once they're done with their medical education, it's totally different than what they may have learned about in medical school. That is, they may have spent hours and hours learning about syndromes and conditions that they may never see. We now know that substance use disorders uh, account for an incredible amount of routine primary care visits when you look at the sequelae of substance use disorders and just how many organ systems are impaired by things like alcohol use disorder or tobacco use disorder, it stands to reason that the medical schools should be spending a lot more time in training physicians um, about treating, about first screening for addiction, recognizing it, and then um, treating it. Uh, So it it is something that we're working on. I would say the good news is that the medical schools want to change. Uh the the challenge before us is is kind of how we tweak those curriculums so as to make sure uh people aren't losing valuable material um because of the, the increase in addiction time that they might be getting.
0: Lee, how about you? Uh what are you saying is things we can do to sort of accelerate the, the growth of this workforce?
1: Yeah, um I think there's a lot that we could be doing. Um, I think, you know, one one thing I just want to mention again is the more we can do to normalize conversations around substance use and to talk about substance use disorder as a preventable um, illness um, that you can intervene, you can treat, people do recover, um, I think that goes a long ways to say, okay, this is not something that um, – needs to be um, hidden. It, we don't need to be secretive about this. We can have conversations and that that you as a patient of a primary care practice or walking into a hospital expect to be asked about your substance use. You expect that that is a part of your full health and well-being picture. Um, so that's just one piece I wanted to mention. And that I think that's an important step. Mm-hmm. And that um, and that health providers start to understand that they, they can do something about it, right? They can help individuals um, cut back, uh, reduce their use, treat, treat their dis- disorder. Um, I think we also need to do a lot to help um, incentivize individuals to um, do this, to want to join the behavioral health workforce. Um, and to help them to stay in the workforce. Um, We all know that reimbursement rates um, are are typically quite low um, for doing this work. And so I think we need to, at a systemic level, think about um, increasing reimbursement rates and finding other ways to incentivize providers um, to provide evidence-based treatment. And in thinking about building the incentives, also building a pipeline for for students from diverse um, backgrounds to again, want to enter this workforce and stay within this workforce. We, we know that typically this, traditionally this field has uh, not been very diverse and that we have a long ways to go to bring in individuals from um, communities of color to provide substance use disorder um, care. Um, and then the other, I wanted to hit upon, a lot of the work that Apt Associates does with with our federal um, agencies, including the CDC, HRSA, the Agency for Healthcare um, Research and Quality, is around quality improvement. And so um, if we provide trainings to the workforce. um, It needs to be in an ongoing way, and we need to be able to have measures in place to monitor progress, to monitor patient outcomes. And I think the more that health professionals see improvements in their patients, and they can actually see the data, and they hear the stories, and they share the stories and improvements, the more likely it is that their peers or more providers around them will also want to be addressing substance use concerns.
2: Lee, I'm I'm really glad you you brought that up, and and if I could make a follow-up point, um, there's almost a financial, um, some perverse financial incentives to uh, patients, uh, sick patients uh, remaining sick in in a fee-for-service model. And and if you conceive of of a patient with lung cancer, um, you can imagine uh, just how high the reimbursements are for treating somebody with lung cancer. You oftentimes perform surgery upon them, all sorts of radiologic uh, bills related to CAT scans and MRIs and PET scans and so on, uh, chemotherapy, radiation, et cetera. It's, It's a very expensive endeavor to care for somebody with lung cancer. But when you unpack the reason why that person perhaps developed lung cancer and you talk about tobacco use disorder, there's really no incentive for the primary care physician 20 years earlier to have screened for tobacco use disorder, intervened upon it, and prevented all of that healthcare spend later on in that patient's life. And so I I think one of the exciting things about a possible pivot to wide-scale value-based care is we could see some of those incentives uh, start to sort of uh, move upstream, if you will, and, and we can start to incentivize uh, physicians for for keeping their patients healthier and and doing uh, perhaps what some might consider to be less glamorous work in simply sitting with somebody and counseling them about the dangers of tobacco use, uh, so that they never end up developing that cancer which causes so much spend uh, twenty years later.
1: Uh, Tib, we we spend a lot of time thinking about this at App Associates and talking about the the point that you just made and would love any opportunity to evaluate this type of work. We um, do a lot of work around um, quality improvement, developing quality measures with health systems, um, helping systems um, move upstream, um, and, and working with, with our federal government clients around value-based payments and al- alternative payment models. So, yeah, we would love to do more to investigate that approach.
2: So, Lee, you mentioned diversity in our uh, in our field, and and, and the reality is uh, we have sort of two challenges ahead of us in in addiction medicine fellowships. Um, number one, we have now eighty three ACGME accredited addiction medicine fellowships uh, across America, and they're in very diverse uh, geographic settings and and take care of diverse communities. Um, one of our goals of course is to make sure that all of those fellowships are filled uh, year in and year out and so we're facing a challenge of making sure that physician trainees who are in their residencies be that in pediatrics medicine or family medicine know that we exist as a field and so getting exposure Uh, Trying to get the word out that these addiction medicine fellowships are available for physicians from any specialty is is really important for us. Uh, These are one-year fellowship programs that can really be a wonderful way for physicians from any background um, to um, differentiate themselves in the healthcare marketplace. Um, Just as importantly as filling our fellowships, though, is making sure that uh, we're graduating a diverse workforce uh, that represents America and represents uh, American addiction patients. Um, America has a rather sordid history when it comes to addiction treatment, and and certainly when it comes to the way that uh, laws related to the horrible disease of addiction um, have been prosecuted. And so at ACAM, Uh, we are very committed to expanding our workforce and making sure that it better reflects the heterogeneity uh, of America. And so with that in mind, uh, we're very much looking forward to partnering um, with historically black colleges and universities um, across the country. So as to help make them aware of our specialty, Uh, likewise with graduate medical education programs, that have a specific focus on underrepresented um, minority patients, Uh, we look forward to to partnering with them as well.
1: Um, And Tim, you probably know more about this because I'm sure you've been having internal discussions as an organization, but the American Rescue Plan passed in March um, allocates $100 million in funding for behavioral health workforce education and training. Opportunities, and it's yet to be seen what will come of that money or what that will actually look like. But there, it, it sounds like there might be great opportunity ahead to come up with a, a unified approach where we're developing standards and competencies, and again, multidisciplinary approaches um, to address workforce needs.
2: I sure hope so, Lee. I mean, I think when you look at the the rescue plan, um, you do see this profound commitment to uh, helping to support workforce training. Um, Just like we educate physicians and nurses and physician assistants in other disease conditions, um, and we should do the same in addiction medicine in that we are explaining the disease as a disease and we're explaining the evidence-based medicine in a very um, sort of uh, heavily protocolized um, uh, template. All graduates of medical schools know exactly what to do for a heart attack. We know what to do for an opioid overdose. We know what to do for alcohol use disorder, but we're not graduating trainees that know exactly how to treat those conditions, and so, we need to collaborate across nursing schools, medical schools, social work schools, so that that entire workforce is actually learning the same material, and only then, I think, can we really start to um, uh, see improvements in the in the quality of care uh, for the disease of addiction.
1: Uh, Tim, I know that your organization, that ACAM has really been leading this charge in many ways over the past several years. Uh, you've had several meetings where you've brought together just healthcare decision makers, um, leaders from um, medical schools, the federal agencies to be having these discussions. So now seems like the time to advance a a national plan, a strategy um, for actually creating change
2: moving forward. The, The spotlight has never been brighter upon the disease of addiction. Uh, Now, tragically, of course, it's the opioid crisis that has has really brightened that spotlight. Um, But the the good news is that as a country, uh, we're finally talking about this condition uh, that of course includes federal leaders and legislators. Um, And so there's a lot of good intention out there. Uh, How we take the next step, how we come together collaboratively, is is before us now and 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 i think we're up for the challenge
0: great well i think ending by talking about looking upstream seems like a pretty good place uh to bring this series to a close Uh, thank you both for joining me thanks eric
1: oh thanks so much eric and thanks so much tim for for joining us it's always great to have these discussions with you
0: and thank you for listening to this app podcast